Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Lexi Elliott, author of the new novel, How to Kill Your Best Friend. Lexi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, How to Kill Your Best Friend, how would you describe the novel? How to Kill Your Best Friend is a psychological thriller. Um, it's told through the eyes of um, two different narrators, Georgie and Bronwyn, who are part of a group of friends who have uh, known each other since university and have been swimming together since university. And they're brought together on a, a remote island where um, one of the group uh, unfortunately drowned. Um and Georgie and Bronwyn can't quite get their head around the fact that this champion swimmer would have drowned. Um, and when they get to the island for the for the memorial, um, there are various strange things that start to happen that um, make them look at every single member of the group with suspicion and events unfold from there. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing How to Kill Your Best Friend? Yeah, it was an unusual one for me in this particular instance in that what occurred to me first was in fact the title, How to Kill Your Best Friend. And I, I thought, huh, that's interesting. Why why would you even want to do that? Um, and I started thinking more about that. And I came up with the these characters, um, Georgie and Bronwyn and Lissa in particular, uh, and the interplay between them. And I happened to be at that point um, on holiday. This was obviously pre-COVID when travel was an awful <laughs> lot easier. And I happened to be on holiday on a, on a remote island. And um, that obviously played a big part in what was going on in my psyche at that point and in terms of the story that... That did develop in my head, but but this is the first time really that it, it anything has sparked from for me from merely a title. And in fact, on my previous two published novels, the working titles that I was using as I was writing them are not the titles that were ultimately put on the published published book. And I'm curious on those earlier two novels, 
what was what was kind of the the uh, kind of impetus? You said you weren't working from a, a title. Uh, was it just basically the idea? Yeah, but my very first um, novel, uh, The French Girl, I'd had that idea for a long time. Um, it, it, the French Girl was set um, with some friends who went um, at the end of university on holiday to a, a farmhouse in France, and then somebody at the, the next farmhouse over um, went missing. And then it starts 10 years later where, where her body has just been found and they were the last people to see her. And um, that idea, oddly enough, happened because I was um, at the end of university. I was on holiday in a French farmhouse with some friends, but nobody died. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd, been ha- I'd had that idea knocking around in my head for a very long time in that instance. Whereas the um, the missing years, my second novel was very much born out of uh, necessity, and the necessity was that I got a two book publishing deal, and of course they turn to you and say, "Oh, <laughs> what are you thinking for your second novel?" And I was uh, I was actually with my um, parents up in Scotland at that point, and I thought. I think I'd like to set it in Scotland <laughs> and um and I used and still do when I'm there go for runs along a particular road where there's a particular house that's always caught my interest and so actually it it became about the manse this particular house and the events within it um and and that again is very much about the landscape of Scotland um playing a part in in the novel it almost you know, the, the house and the landscape is almost a character of itself in that novel. Well, I'm curious, what was your initial writing journey prior to you sitting down and writing The French Girl? Ooh, um, well, I, I always wanted to be a writer. I think as soon as I knew what a writer was, that, you know, books didn't just spontaneously come into being, that people had to create them, then that was what I wanted to do. And even as, you know, a child of six, seven, eight, I, I would scribble down my little stories and want to take them into to my school teachers. Um, so that was something I always wanted to do. But I'm fairly pragmatic. I, I also wanted to pay the bills. Um, so <laughs> I never really, when I got old enough to think about it, about careers, I never really thought that that was the kind of career that would allow me to to do that. Um, so I went to university. I did a physics degree and I did a theoretical physics doctorate. Um, so I was at university for seven years at Oxford University. Um, and, and I always wrote. I wrote short stories often, some poetry that's probably best undiscovered. Um, and um, really then I went into, you know, a career in the city of London. Um, and uh, when I'd had actually my second child and I, I lost my job during the global financial crisis, which, you know, many people did in that industry. Um, and I started thinking in that time when I was without a job, which was about a year before I, I got another one. And I had a very young baby at home. Uh, I was only, um, my youngest was only four weeks old when I lost my job. Um, yeah, I, I, I started thinking more about the writing and focusing on it. And, and it was in that period that I actually, um, you know, wrote a, wrote a novel that wasn't The French Girl. It was the novel before mm-hmm. the one that gets published, <laughs> like many of us published authors we have something else in a draw somewhere but you know through that process I ultimately 
you know, got connected with um, my wonderful agent, Marcy, and um, things went from there. And I'm curious, has the writing process been the same for you for each of your three novels? And specifically on How to Kill Your Best Friend, you said that you had this, I, you had this title and then you started thinking about the book. Before you started writing, are you someone who writes an extensive outline or do you just jump into the narrative? How does that work for you? Um, I, I, I probably now write a, a better and more thorough outline than I, well, certainly than I did for The French Girl. That one was, that just sort of evolved. I didn't have a detailed outline. It, it's something that um, my publisher, Berkeley, likes to see. Um, they want to see mm-hmm. an outline. They want to, to know mm-hmm. what you're planning. Um, and I think it makes the writing process a smoother process for me to do that but I don't view it as anything that is set in stone you know I expect deviations I'm almost nervous if there aren't any um and and it always it interests me the the way in which when you're writing things do take a different turn and characters build up their part or something comes in that you'd never thought of at all and and that's really exciting to me that's almost part of the the magic of the process but the, another part of the process that I've discovered is the same for me is the the kind of self-doubt and neurosis that seems to hit <laughs> me about 20,000 words. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing my fourth novel. I'm past 20,000 words, so I'm very neurotic about it. I, I think that maybe is just my process and it will stay with me forever. And, and how do you kind of manage around that? Yeah, so the the managing right around it is really turning to Marcy, my wonderful agent, and giving her you know a few chapters and saying, "Is this okay? Am I on the right track?" And getting feedback from someone whose opinion I I really trust and value, um, and I just really really hope that she says, "Yes, this is good. Keep going." Great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those writers who are listening, who are working on their own stories and novels? I think if you want to be a writer as a, you know, with writing as your career, as your profession, then my advice is always that you need to be professional about it. You need to set aside time. You need to be dedicated. If you are lucky enough to be in a position where someone is paying you for your writing and you have deadlines, you need to meet those deadlines. Um, It is a job. It is a career. And you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't miss a deadline because you just didn't feel like doing the project at work in any other um, profession. So you shouldn't be doing it in this profession. And sometimes, sometimes it's going to feel like a job because everybody has those days where, you know, it's a real struggle to get anything out. Um, but you have to sit down and you have to try. So I, I think that's the best piece of advice I can give is just be professional about it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sure. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? 
So when I'm writing, um, as I am right now on my fourth book, um, very much in, in the first draft phase, I find it quite difficult to read anything that's at all close to the kind of things that I write. So I tend to move into different genres or, or more experimental novels or something that is very, very different to the kind of voice I, that I tend to write in because otherwise um, I can accidentally pick up the voice and then find I've got, you know, two chapters of rubbish. Um, so what I've read recently, um, I really loved um, Suzanne Clark's uh, Piranesi, um, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And they haven't they, they had to delay the announcement of the winner. So I haven't yet heard if it, that one is the winner. Um, but I, I just thought that was amazing. Really, really fantastic, wonderful, generous book. Um and other than that, I've been trying to get my get through um, Hilary Mantel's uh, a third book in the trilogy, the Thomas Cromwell trilogy, uh, the The Mirror and the Light, which is a very long book, but very very good. Um, and I'm wondering if I'm being so slow on it because I really just don't want to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Early in your career, as you were working on The French Girl, and as you mentioned, a novel that preceded The French Girl. Were there specific books or writers that kind of inspired you at that early point of you writing novels? I think the the real inspiration came much earlier than that. Actually, I think in my in my teenage years when um, I read extensively, much more extensively than I have the time to do now. And I really enjoyed Margaret Atwood. And in fact, Margaret Atwood's um, The Wilderness Tips short story um, collection really opened my eyes to what you can do with the short story genre. And that was what got me going on on really um, writing as, as a teenager. Um, and then Sherry S. Tepper, um, wrote a wonderful book called uh, Grass, which is a um, fantasy slash science fiction novel and the world building, a lot of rich and deep characterization Mm -hmm. that she got and those wonderful character arcs that that just carried you along with them and, and swept you away. And those two authors particularly have, have had a very strong influence on me. Um, and then I, I think when I started to actually write my first novel, which, as I say, wasn't the one that got published, I I was maybe assimilating everything that I had read over the, the period of time, which by then, you know, was perhaps another 15 years or so since I'd first gotten into those Atwood and, and Sherry S. Tepper novels. Um but it, but that was what I would say was the real spark of inspiration of what you can do with, you know, the literary form, what what you can build, and and how meaningful it can be. That's great. I'm I'm curious, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels and your new novel, How to Kill Your Best Friend? Well, the easiest place is LexiaElliott.com. That has um, obviously links to all my novels and it has links to all the social feeds and, and, and all of that that, uh, that we have to do these days. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Lexi Elliott, author of the new novel, How to Kill Your Best Friend. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Lexi, thanks for doing this interview. 
Oh, thank you. It's been lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of How to Kill Your Best Friend by Lexi Elliott, narrated by L. Potter and Jane Collingwood, available from PRH Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. Breakfast. Breakfast on my own, on a terrace overlooking a bay with colors so brightly saturated that it's as if someone has applied an Instagram filter to the whole vista. Breakfast that has been cooked, cooked, not poured from a cereal box, by somebody else and delivered by a young man with a smile and skin so perfect it's ludicrous that he isn't starring in a face cream commercial. I would give anything for this normally, so why can't I enjoy it? Morning. It's Georgie, looking exactly right for the setting, in a pale sleeveless shirt dress and flip-flops, with enormous sunglasses hiding half her face and damp hair pulled into a messy bun. Time marches on everywhere, except around Georgie. I pull out a chair for her. Where did you get to last night? I ask, though I already know. It wasn't hard to put two and two together when neither Adam nor Georgie appeared in the bar after the swim, though it made for a tamer evening than I'd anticipated. Or perhaps Lissa's absence would have done that anyway. She was always the match to Georgie's touch paper. But Georgie makes a non-committal gesture with her hand. Adam, I press, then immediately feel gauche. Yes, says Georgie. But then she's turning to order muesli in the black coffee from our wondrous skinned waiter. I wonder where Adam is. What does it say about their tumble if they aren't even eating breakfast together afterward? I've never known how to handle Georgie and Lissa's casual approach to men, as if they are toys to pick up and put down, as if those men have no feelings of their own. I could never quite work out if I was appalled or impressed by it, though Lissa at least evolved enough to marry, twice, in fact. Adam was asking the other day about how we met. I say. Georgie doesn't answer, but I'm fairly sure she's paying close attention. Sometimes I forget he wasn't at uni with the rest of us. Us, meaning Georgie, Duncan, myself, and Lissa. And Graham, once upon a time. Five, then four, now three. Anyway, what was it, 16, 17 years ago that we met? Something like that. I've known you as long as I haven't. A short laugh bursts out of me unexpectedly, and she arches her neck slightly and smiles, enjoying my reaction. How typically Georgie. The sly twist she puts on things that halts you in your tracks. She never quite says what everyone else would, but she almost does. If you weren't paying attention, you'd miss the difference. Ah, I say wryly, but I'm WYSIWYG, remember? WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. That's what Lissa used to describe me as. It was affectionately meant, and I took it as such, even if I sometimes wished to be just a little mysterious. Though only a little, mystery must be so exhausting. You don't need long to get to know me. I don't know. You still manage to surprise me from time to time. She's still smiling, 
still pulling me into the bright circle of Georgie. She could be the exact same girl, not a cell different from the one I met 17 or so years ago. Working? I gesture at the laptop she's placed on the chair beside her. Yep, we're having IT issues though, so I'm not sure how successful I'll be at logging in remotely. Her hand moves as if to chop off that conversation, too dull. And then she tips her sunglasses up on her forehead and focuses on me with her green eyes. Anyway, it's so good to see you, despite... I know, you too. We still miss you in London, you know? I try to cajole her back every time I see her, but it never works. Her smile is rueful. I miss you guys too. New York is great, but you can never make friends as close as the ones from uni. Nobody has the time after that. The rueful smile makes a brief reappearance. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.